Welcome to the latest Red Star Daily Bulletin for this Monday, the 17th of October. And on today's bulletin, we're going to be doing the usual thing, which is looking at the latest from the front line of the Ukraine war, but also looking further afield to some of the wider political and economic knock-on effects of that war. And we're going to be taking in some comments made recently by the EU's foreign policy chief, a certain Mr. Josep Borrell, at a recent meeting of a diplomatic academy in Bruges. So we're going to be coming to that later, but first let's look at where the front lines are in terms of the war in east of Ukraine and the west of Russia. Now over the course of the weekend there was some action on the front lines in Ukraine and southwest Russia. So let's go through these one by one and see where things stand at the moment. Now, it doesn't look as if there's been any significant breakthrough by the Ukrainian forces who have been repeatedly trying to make attacks along the uh, Kherson region. So over the course of the weekend, there was an attempt by Ukrainian forces to advance in the direction of Krivoy Rog uh, in the uh, Durchan area. And you can see all this on the map that uh, I've attached to the episode. So they tried to break through uh, to the right bank of the Dnieper River towards uh, Milovi, but that was blocked by the dug-in Russian troops around there. They made a more serious effort on the Kherson front, where the uh, Ukrainians attacked again, not in the same force that they have done previously. Uh, There was uh, some fighting in that area over the weekend, which saw the Russians claiming to have destroyed um, over 100 uh, Ukrainian troops per day over the course of the weekend. They're making another claim this morning that another 100 have been killed and several armoured vehicles destroyed, including uh, some artillery, including one m seven howitzer provided by the United States to the armed forces of Ukraine. So the Kherson region has actually been in the news rather a lot in the Western press over the course of the last few days. And it's worth just unpacking that a little bit because there was a lot of talk that the Russians were evacuating Kherson city, that they were pulling out of the region. And this proved to be largely untrue. What had been said was that there was a voluntary evacuation program being offered to residents of the region because the Russians anticipated another push by Ukrainian forces in the area and they wanted to clear out as many civilians as they could to avoid uh, civilian casualties from any uh, artillery and shelling that the Ukrainian forces might conduct. There was a quite frankly poor uh, series of communications from the Kherson regional government with seemingly contradictory statements being made by uh, Vladimir Saldo the uh, head of the region and Kirill Stremusov um, who is the deputy head of the Kherson region. Now this was immediately seized upon because what Saldo said and what Stremusov said in the end were roughly about the same thing which is that they were going to offer evacuation to civilians given that they anticipated another Ukrainian push. This was then taken up of course by the western press and hyped into a story about Russians abandoning Kherson and then this gets back into the Russian blogosphere and hyped up that the Kremlin's capitulating again and there are the cowardly Russian leaders are selling people out. And in reality, what had happened was that they were offering evacuation and that the the Russians had, in the Kherson region, 
dug into new defences and weren't going to defend like the yards and yards of open fields uh, that the Ukrainians advanced through. And this is something that the uh, Russian uh, commentator Andrei Martinov pointed out recently in one of his videos. It's not um, the tactics of the early Soviet army in World War II, which is defend every inch of land. And even then, they even back then, that's a bit of a cliche. They didn't actually do that. Uh, they fell back to more entrenched positions and defended successfully against the Ukrainian advance over the weekend. So the whole story that had been hyped up that Russia was about to lose Kherson was, in reality, a invention of Western PR agencies, Western intelligence agencies, who were trying to hype this thing up um, as something that was going to be a huge breakthrough for Ukraine, turned out, in the end, so far, to be nothing of the kind. And it seems that the Russian troops are very well entrenched in Kherson region and did intend to defend uh, the place without falling back, without the need to fall back. It's also worth mentioning that, of course, there are many, many thousands of Russian troops within striking distance of Kherson region uh, coming into Crimea especially. So it's not as if they lack for men in the area unlike the withdrawal from around Kharkov region earlier on in September, where hundreds of miles of front line were being defended by a few hundred troops from Russian National Guard units, which are very lightly armed and not supported by significant amounts of armoured vehicles. And that's what enabled the Ukrainian push there to succeed as much as it did. The fact that the Russians had withdrawn a lot of their forces and were reorganising themselves, that's what gave that Ukrainian push the success that it did have in that it was essentially knocking on an open door. In Kherson region, it seems the Russians are dug in and determined to defend, and the stories circulating in the Western press have largely been of a fanciful or, or entirely fictional nature. Now, Ukrainian armed forces are clearly preparing, again, more attempts to advance in the southern part of the front line. There's more and more talk of them trying to advance in Zaporozhye again. I've mentioned this before, but there is clearly some kind of Ukrainian plan to try and seize back the Zaporozhye nuclear power plant for both uh, the prestige reason that it would bring them and also the fact that they need the power now because um, they need the power that that plant can provide for the Ukrainian energy grid because the Russian pressure on that Ukrainian energy grid is not letting up. There was, of course, the salvos of missiles and drones that started hitting Ukrainian energy infrastructure last week, and this has continued um, into this week as well. Some Russian sources say that the intensity has slackened off somewhat, but looking at the reports coming from Ukrainian channels, it seems that the uh, power substations and thermal power plants are still being hit every day by Russian cruise missiles and the apparently Iranian-designed drones. And now uh, the success of these Iranian-designed drones and uh, guided missiles are the subject of another controversy within the European Union with uh, Josep Borrell, who we will come to later, uh, threatening more sanctions on Iran for providing these drones and missiles to the Russians. The Iranians deny that they have done. Who knows? It certainly seems that the Russians have got hold of a new set of uh, drones and uh, missiles that seem to be of Iranian design. Um, whether these are shipped directly from Iran or manufactured in Russia under license from Iran, 
I don't know. It would certainly seem more likely, given the Russian military industrial capacity, that if they wanted something from the Iranians, they would essentially buy the rights to manufacture it themselves. And also the Iranians, unless they've got a gigantic stockpile of these things, um, wouldn't want to strip their own defenses in the way that NATO is. So it seems more likely that if the Russians are using these things, that they are might have bought an initial batch from the Iranians, but they are seemingly manufacturing these drones and missiles that are, that are of Iranian design inside Russia itself. Uh, the idea that the Iranians are flying in tons and tons of these things, even though there are military flights between Tehran and, uh, and Russia, it doesn't seem to be likely. It's more likely that they're manufacturing these things inside Russia. So it is a big victory it would seem for Iranian drone and missile technology because the Iranians as many observers have pointed out fa thanks to them under operating under a severe sanctions regime for a long long time have had to innovate an awful lot in terms of their own defense needs and one of the things that the Iranians use as a deterrent to the United States is the fact that they have this extensive missile and drone network which they've manufactured which is apparently either immune or very resistant to american electronic warfare suites so the american ships that um, sit on in the red sea that would be used to launch any attack on iran are equipped with apparently extensive electronic warfare devices that enable them to uh, bl block the signals that go to uh, many modern missiles, many modern cruise missiles. So the Iranians have essentially got around that by making these missiles into things which are immune to this electronic jamming. And they do that by essentially making them slightly lower tech, which means that when they launch these things, that they don't have a constant signal coming into them to guide them, that they pre-program the, uh, the coordinates into the missile or drone before it is launched and then it just launches in the manner of older missile systems which are much more difficult to block because if there's no electronic signal coming in you can't block anything the best you can do is to try and shoot it down and this is what the ukrainian air force has been trying to do very unsuccessfully it would appear uh, there was the famous example of the uh, drone that came in drone missile that came into uh, around the kiev region last week which the the ukrainian air force tried to scramble a, i think it was a mig-31 to try and intercept and then the mig couldn't intercept it and ended up crashing itself so these are evidently very capable uh, pieces of equipment that the iranians have provided and are very difficult to block and of course this is this continued pressure upon the ukrainian energy system is of course making the uh, Ukrainian government run by uh, Vladimir Zelensky and his cronies very desperate, hence the talk of getting more air defense systems. But for all the talk and the hype that came out of NATO last week about this, the German defense minister today, Christine Lambrecht, was quoted as saying that the German air defense system that they were promising, that this system known as the IRIS system, would not be delivered until sometime next year, when if you read the latest accounts, even from NATO sources, even from the leaks that come out of MI6 and the CIA and other Western intelligence services, they all anticipate the heaviest blow coming to Ukraine in November or December time. 
So by the time these things are delivered, it would be too late. And in the quantities that Ukraine would need these systems, the, the German-Irish system and the Norwegian-American co-developed system, the NASAM system, the idea that they're going to build this whole new air defense system out of these two uh, weapon systems that they're looking to deliver by sometime in 2023 is a bit of a joke. I mean, Zelensky was demanding all this because... One of the other things the Russian forces are doing at the moment is they are systematically annihilating what's left of the Ukrainian air defense system because they want to have as free a hand as possible to deal with uh, the Ukrainian ground forces using the very powerful Russian air force. And of course, the more you can get rid of the air defense system, the more access to the sky you have. They also seem to be pushing to destroy the last remnants of the Ukrainian Air Force, which would make sense if you're planning something major which needs air support. So you can see the Russians are moving towards a position where they are able to launch their own offensive, and most military sources seem to be in agreement that this will be in late in November or early December. The Belarusians are now saying that they're uh, whole thing will be over by February of next year, which would mean it be, would be a whole year's worth of war would be brought to a close by then. Difficult to say at this stage whether that would be the final finishing point for this thing. As I have said before, the war aims of the United States and their allies haven't changed. They're still operating on the idea that the longer that they can keep this thing going, the longer that they can prop Ukraine up just enough to keep sending men to fight and die in the east, and the more messy they can make this thing, ultimately they hope that the Russians will lose their diplomatic allies and that the sanctions will finally start to kick in. It would seem, though, that that is not a likely occurrence on either front, given that the latest attempts to isolate Russia have all failed. They seem to be actually providing Russia with more allies in the form of Saudi Arabia and the Gulf states who are making more positive overtures to the Russian government by the day, thanks to the blundering ineptitude of the Biden administration, which seems to be operating in a manner that's far cruder even than the Bush administration or the Trump administration, in that they're just throwing threats around to the Saudis, to the UAE, particularly the Saudis. That uh, decision to cut production by OPEC Plus is something that they blamed the uh, Russians for, but the rage of the Biden administration at the Saudis is something to behold. And there was a, f a footage that came out over the weekend uh, of a Saudi prince, uh, one of the many Saudi princes that make up the government, basically saying to the Americans, and he said this in English, um, he said, uh, if you threaten us, we will, we will defend ourselves and we will wage jihad upon you. Now, hot air, maybe, but clearly this is something that has changed because you would not have got that 10 years ago. You would not have got a Saudi prince coming out and openly making uh, threats to the Americans that if they uh, try to push the Saudis around that they will, uh, they, they will wage jihad upon them. Now, some Americans might argue that the Saudis have done that already, uh, but I would emphasize the fact that in previous years, you know, under previous presidents, the Saudis always marched in lockstep with the Americans when it came to deploying jihadist forces in the Middle East. This was very much a co-production. Still is in Yemen, by the way. That's still something which is going on with American and British support. 
whether the Americans pull support from that is going to be the ultimate test of how badly the Biden administration wants to react to this. Are they prepared to dump the Saudis over the Yemen war, believing as they do that the Ansar Allah movement in Yemen, which is the real uh, government in Yemen, uh, that's known by the derisive and dismissive term by the Americans as the Houthi movement. It consists of much more than the what was previously described as the Houthis. It's a genuine national front of many different political forces inside Yemen who have united together against the attempt by the Saudis to squash them and the attempts by the Americans to do so. And this is something which they put down to, the Americans put down to Iranian influence, and the Iranians probably have something to do with it, but it is mainly a Yemeni affair. And incidentally, going back to our earlier discussion of air defense systems, the Yemenis successfully launched very low-tech drones uh, against the Saudi oil facilities uh, on multiple occasions over the past two years, which the American uh, air defense systems that they provided to the Saudis were completely unable to stop. So again, doesn't seem like the great thing that Zelensky thinks it is. So this is a developing situation uh, with the Saudis. It's something that's very much worth keeping an eye on. And if you believe another uh, press release that the Saudi government put out the, uh, over the weekend, where the Saudi foreign ministry said that the Biden administration was urging them to at least delay the production cut by a month. So delay it until the midterms have uh, passed and before, therefore, any price rise made its way into uh, the pump prices in the United States. So, again, another attempt by the Biden administration to rather crudely manipulate the situation to their own political benefit not only fails, but then the Saudis publicly, publicly come out and say what the Biden administration was trying to do. Again, you would not have got that 10 years ago. You might not have even have got that five years ago, because Trump, for all his bellicosity, and um, stamping of his feet really came out and said what the relationship was all about which is we sell you weapons you support our policies not and also of course you support us by maintaining the petrodollar via pricing oil in dollars and trump said all that publicly which is another reason why the american political elites hate him so much it made clear the rather thuggish and gangsterist methods they actually use and that's not something that they could take. Which leads us rather neatly on to the topic of diplomacy. And obviously Donald Trump not noted for it. But then again, Donald Trump did have more diplomatic successes in his term in office than Biden will. Uh, Donald Trump famously tried to make some kind of deal with Kim Jong-un, which would have succeeded if not for Trump's own ineptitude and his employment of bitter reactionaries like Mike Pompeo and John Bolton, who undermined even his own good intentions when it came to the uh, the Korean deal. But I turn, of course, to the comments made by a certain Mr. Joseph Burrell. And if you're not familiar with who Joseph Burrell is, he's a former social democratic politician from Spain. He served in the social democratic government of Felipe Gonzalez in the 1980s, and then became a permanent EU bureaucrat later on in his career. And he is the EU's senior diplomat. Now, it seems rather strange that the EU, this supranational organization, which is nothing except the sum of its parts, it's nothing without France, it's nothing without Germany or Italy, but it has this bureaucratic structure which sits in Brussels mainly, but also Strasbourg, uh, which 
comes up with all kinds of statements and policies and has a grandiose vision of itself. And this grandiose vision really goes back to its very foundations, which are in the 1940s and 50s, with uh, its intellectual founders, people like Jean Monnet, had a vision of a supranational organization that would insulate the crucial things within politics, which is mainly the economic sphere, from political pressure and essentially remove the small pieces of democratic reform that the working class movement had won inside Europe uh, that had enabled the working class to exert pressure on the economy specifically. And that's something that people like Jean Monnet and others very much wanted removed from democratic pressure. And that is something which they have managed to do uh, in the development of the EU, particularly with the, the weakening of the organized working class in Europe and the merging of the old socialist countries now run by uh, reactionary counter-revolutionary regimes into the EU. They now have the this huge block which enables them to move capital and labor around wherever they like. It operates as a continent-wide wage suppression mechanism and it means that essentially for countries like Greece and even Italy, Spain, Portugal, Ireland, their chance of affecting anything through voting for any particular government of any particular political stripe has been almost entirely removed thanks to the extensive price that the really the German ruling class and the French ruling class would impose upon any government which sought to deviate from the rigid rules that these uh, governments have institutionalized within EU treaties and if you want uh, more details on this Go back and listen to the interview with the Italian writer Thomas Farsi that I did recently, or the interview with Nikos Motas of the uh, website In Defense of Communism, who gives the perspective from Greece on this, and what the, uh, the effect of EU membership and the rigid uh, fiscal and monetary regime they impose upon the EU nations has done to the democratic processes in these countries the minimal amount of democratic reforms that the working class was able to gain and exercise influence through to a small degree in the 20th century almost all of that has now been completely destroyed and no matter who you vote for in any of these eu countries now you end up always with the same commitments because as we discussed in the interview with thomas fuzzy the italian presidency and the italian constitution now dictates that the thing that any Italian government has to do above all else is stick by its international obligations, most represented through the EU and through NATO. And so this is something which um, is a straitjacket. It is a way of imposing the worst kind of uh, bourgeois, anti-democratic counter-reforms upon these countries. And yet, of course, the politicians themselves, like Joseph Burrell, see this as a wonderful thing. And it is at this point I will play to you comments made by Joseph Burrell at the European Diplomatic Academy in Bruges just over the course of this week. Europe is a garden. We have built a garden. Everything works. It's the best combination of uh, political freedom, economic prosperity, and social cohesion that the humankind has been able to build. There's three things together. The rest of the world, most of the rest of the world is the jungle. And the jungle could invade the garden. And the gardeners should take care of it. So those are rather revealing comments. And I think 
these would be regarded in any other circumstances as a gaffe, which is, in British political terms, the act of unintentionally telling the truth. And, of course, Joseph Borrell, he is supposed to be the EU's head of diplomacy. Uh, <laughs> not that he was very diplomatic in those comments, because it sounds like something that would be part of uh, Rudyard Kipling's old poem, The White Man's Burden, if it was slightly less poetic. But essentially, it's the same sentiment. It is exactly the same sentiment. Rudyard Kipling were, is, of course, the old uh, British poet and writer who famously wrote several books, some of which are very enjoyable, to be honest, but the man was a deep um, colonialist, um, a passionate supporter of British imperialism. And in the poem The White Man's Burden, of course, he uh, expressed almost the exact sentiments that Joseph Borrell is expressing there. Now, Borrell, of course, would furiously deny that he's any kind of racist, but essentially what Borrell is expressing there is every bit as out there as the most enthusiastic uh, online European nationalist. That is essentially what Borrell is expressing there, but there is something deeper within Borrell's comments, and this is something which is expressed in... Uh, various different things that Burrell has said and written, but not just him. Uh, von der Leyen acts in exactly the same way. And when they say that Europe is a garden and it's the, the best of all possible worlds, it's the best that uh, humanity has achieved uh, in terms of uh, development. Now, there's certain truths within that, which is that for many years in the period after 1945 to around about the well, 2008 financial crisis, Certain areas in Western Europe went through unprecedented bursts of prosperity. And of course, what is this ultimately based on? Of course, Joseph Burrell, you would think at one point in his life, might have understood this, given that he comes from a social democratic uh, background, but probably not, given the uh, very, very uh, pro-capitalist nature of the PSOE, the Spanish social Dem democracy. But European prosperity in the post-war period, in this period which everybody in Britain who supported remaining in the EU said they uh, were passionately in favour of, this prosperity was based on, of course, exploitation of the European working class being one of the primary sources of the uh, the wealth of Western Europe after World War II and its huge level of development, but also gigantic infusions of capital from the United States being another. So, Thing, uh, resources that are exploited from the American working class. But and another huge slice of this was, of course, colonialism. And this is very much true in the case of Britain. Uh, a big part of why the British ruling class were able to build the welfare state and other things which are so admired by people outside of Europe, and understandably so, is because they were able to hyper-exploit places like uh, Malaysia or Malaya at the time, places like Kenya, and other British colonies in Africa. French did the same with their colonies. And the European Union has maintained that exploitative relationship. If you just look at the European Union's trade arrangements with Africa, for instance, which I'm sure Joseph Burrell would refer to as the jungle. And this is how the European nations still operate to this day, which is why the French are getting so mad at the Russians because they blame the Russians for driving them out of Mali in the Central African Republic and threatening their positions in Burkina Faso. Now, 
may be that the Russians are prepared to exploit the difficulties the French are having there, but fundamentally the French are getting driven out of these places by the local populations because after more than 50 years of independence of these countries, they have faced multiple coups, overturns of governments, assassinations of leaders, most famously in Burkina Faso, of course, was the murder of Thomas Sankara, the socialist revolutionary leader of Burkina Faso, who gave the country its modern name, who tried to a high degree of success over the brief period he was in power to free it from uh, French and Western financial domination, free it from Western aid, make it self-sufficient, modernize the country, all of which was bitterly opposed by French imperialism. And of course, they uh, found a stooge inside the military, one of Sankara's old comrades, Blaise Comparaore, to step forward, murder Sankara, and reduce Burkina Faso to a French dependency again. But of course, the Burkina Faso population haven't forgotten the lessons of Sankara. The Burkina Faso working class have decidedly not forgotten that period and are determined to rid themselves of French influence. And one can only hope that they succeed. But Joseph Borrell's comments, uh, seeing Europe as the gardener, and to maintain the garden, uh, the gardener must, of course, go into the jungle and bring back rare and exotic things to be grown under controlled conditions in the garden, be that resources or people. And, of course, the other thing that uh, Europe drains from other developing countries is people. And that's one of the big reasons that Angela Merkel agreed to a million-strong influx of refugees from Syria um, 10 years ago, almost now. Well, seven years ago in 2015 was the big influx. And because, why? Because Germany needed a low-wage sector to boost economic growth. And who better than people who will take any kind of wage, work in any kind of industry? People like Joseph Borrell and Ursula von der Leyen see this as the process of European civilizing people. And that's how they see the world. And why wouldn't they? That is the class perspective of the bourgeoisie in Western Europe. They see the European Union as an enormous success. They, of course, would not see or would not admit to the fact that what is actually happening inside the EU, as the previous interviews I've conducted show, and as also you can tell just by looking at even mainstream news sources from the last 10 years, is that Europe is gripped with increasing division, with increasing economic problems. The euro is a project which is sinking, is fatally flawed from its very beginnings. The, there are increasing anti-EU, specifically anti-EU protests growing in many countries across Europe. That's a big part of what the Netherlands protests led by the farmers were about. It's now animating political discourse in Italy, even if Meloni wants to grovel to the EU and fulfill her constitutional commitments and international obligations in the way that uh, Mario Draghi would be proud of. But that impulse is not going away. It is not going away in Germany either, which is why the AFD is growing in strength and why Die Linke is splitting. Part of Die Linke wants to become just like the Green Party. The other part is actually serious about building a working class party of some kind. Whether they'll succeed or not is another matter. But this is what powered the Brexit referendum. It's what's powering a lot of political developments inside France, the anti-Macron protests. Uh, there are also anti-EU protests because 
life for many Europeans, the European working class, and even sections of the European middle class, is getting poorer. The cost of living is going up, wages are stagnating. And yet Burrell and von der Leyen and the others who are completely cut off from reality, of course, in the rarefied atmosphere of of conference chambers in Bruges and VIP lounges, they don't see this at all. They are as cut off from this as any absolute monarch was. And in the end, given their inflexibility, given their complete uh, inability to admit that anything's wrong, given their complete inability to change anything, and given the, the rigidness with which the Euro project is upheld and which the EU is upheld, it can only lend itself towards disintegration and collapse, which is what the smarter end of the European leaders now see. It's clear that people like Orban see the end coming, where the only question now is whether Hungary leaves of its own accord or is kicked out. The Even the Polish reactionaries probably see the end coming. It's just that they don't really have a plan for what to do next. There's various statements coming from the Serbian government about whether they actually want to join the EU or not. The Serbian interior ministry spoke over the weekend and made it clear that he didn't see a future for Serbia in the EU. And the ruling classes of these uh, reactionary governments in Eastern Europe might still see it as a ticket to well, a meal ticket for themselves, basically, but increasingly, even in places like Romania, which of which there was a groundswell of some support for EU membership, you're starting to see anti-EU sentiment grow there rapidly as well. Now, the immediate beneficiaries of this are the people on the right, people like the AFD in Germany, um, various characters on the right, personified by like Marine Le Pen in France. But if there's going to be any serious communist movement reborn in Europe, then it needs to take the attitude that some of the smaller Italian communist parties are developing towards the EU now, which is one of opposition, of calling for the thing to be dismantled or disintegrated as a completely reactionary project. And this, of course, brings us in head to head-on confrontation with the delusional Social Democrats who are still crying about how it could be reformed and how it's some wonderful civilizational project. This is something which must be rejected. As you can tell from the words of Joseph Burrell, the people that run this are deep reactionaries. And in their delusion and determined to maintain, determination to maintain the delusion, they will sink millions upon millions of Europeans in every nation, into poverty, and claim still that this is the pinnacle of humanity. Uh, the delusion runs very deep here. So that brings us to the end of like the discussion of Burrell. There's a couple of other things I wanted to include in the, uh, in the updates, which are amusing, to say the least. Now, speaking of Europe, um, there was something which came out over the weekend which revealed that the nations of Europe, several of them at least, have actually restored uh, trade levels with Russia to the level that they were in February of 2022, immediately before the war escalated to its current stage. And those nations are Bulgaria, Cyprus, Luxembourg, Slovenia, Croatia, and Estonia. Now, some of those are very interesting because the governments of Slovenia and Estonia in particular have been absolutely hysterical in their denunciations of Russia and Putin and there must be regime change. But exports and imports of goods to and from Russia in all of those places have gone up and recovered to the 
period the, the period that was uh, in existence immediately before the war and exports of goods to Russia increased dramatically in recent months so Latvia another Baltic state with um, a hysterical government screaming about the evils of Putin well they increased the export of their goods to Russia uh, by 67 percent Slovenia increased their exports to Russia by 37 percent Croatia by 28 percent Bulgaria by 25 percent and Estonia led by the hysterical Kaya Kalas uh, by 19 percent so this is a case of capital always finds a way the leaders of these countries might make hysterical statements about the need to dispose of the evil Putin, about their commitment to European civilizational nationalism, of which Joseph Borrell would be proud. But in the end, there's a market there in Russia for goods that are produced by these countries, and that market must be filled. And if they don't do it, other capitalists from the East will. And they've got close geographical proximity to Russia and established trade links there so the capitalists in these countries want to exploit those and so the governments of these countries are faced with a dreadful choice either slide yourself further into recession and honor your government's hysterical pronunciations or quietly do business on the side and slowly erode the sanctions and these are all countries by the way which are very close to the United States politically speaking but Increasingly, of course, they will gravitate towards the local market, and the local market is much more Russian than it is American. And of course, a lot of these countries increased their imports from Russia as well. So Slovenia is now importing four times more products and services from Russia than they did um, in the previous three months. Croatia, two and a half times. The Czechs double, have doubled their imports from Russia. So this is a case of the sanctions are not only failing but are slowly being reversed even amongst the governments that are the most hysterical in their denunciation to the russians and this is only going to increase as time goes on because as other sources inside the united states are now openly talking about the weapons deliveries to ukraine are slowing down the americans are running out of material to send as are the europeans the air defences, as I mentioned earlier, won't be set up there to anything like an effective degree until sometime next year. And everybody now expects the Russians to deliver a fatal blow to the Ukrainian armed forces at some point before December of this year, or in early December at the latest. So this thing is slowly, I think, working its way towards its end, and it ends with the defeat of Ukraine. The only question now is... Do the Americans manage to push the Zelensky stooge regime into sacrificing more Ukrainian lives to keep this thing going? Or does the Zelensky regime collapse and Zelensky himself flee into exile somewhere into one of his villas? Maybe he can take back that one in Italy that he rented out recently. Because trade relations, even amongst the most hysterical Eastern European governments, are being restored. Sanctions are not working. The Russian economy is growing again. The battlefield situation will only get worse for Ukraine. So how long do the Americans in particular with their British stooges spin this thing out? And that's something that I would hope many people in Ukraine are asking, which is given that trade relations with the Russian Federation will be restored by Europe in the end, the EU will disintegrate in the end. 
all the bullshit that the Euro the Ukrainian oligarchy spun to its people about EU membership is going to be turning to ashes in their mouths very soon. So how many more have to die to maintain these fantasies and bolster the ego of the imperialists in the White House and in 10 Downing Street? So that's the update for today covering the, the weekend. I'll be back tomorrow with more and hopefully there'll be some more entertaining comments from Joseph Burrell. Thank you for listening and I'll be speaking to you again tomorrow.